This audio is from the Axis Church in Nashville, Tennessee, and is part of our sermon series, Desperate, Vital Doctrine for All of Life from the Book of Ephesians. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org. I want to bring a little bit of context here to this passage, looking back to last week, starting in verse uh, 17. Uh, Therefore, do not be foolish. This is Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 17. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in hymns, uh, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father, and in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then you have our passage, beginning with wives, submit to your husbands, and then here's how husbands are to lead in the home. You see, friends, our great enemies, the the old nature, the old self, um, who we were before Christ, as well as our great enemy, Satan and, and sin, they want nothing more for our marriages than to destroy them. And so day in and day out, there's a war raging within your home and with, within your marriage. And it gets so intense that you will often consider your spouse your enemy. And this is a chief tactic of, of the enemy, um, is, to, is to divide. You see, marriage is a war, but it's not against your spouse though Satan would want you to believe this. It's part of his strategy. And I know marriage is extremely fickle right now today. There's prenuptial agreements. There's starter marriages where you sign a contract for like five years that you're going to do this thing together for tax purposes and, uh, and then legally separate after a certain time. And it's sort of like a starter home. Um, of course, divorce floods our country. Uh, marriage is often treated uh, like a job. You can always find another one. Um, or like a car, you got to test drive it first, and then you can trade it in uh, for a different one. And unfortunately, there's often very little dignity, there's very little honor, um, there's, there's very little respect found within our marriages, and even around the concept of marriage today. And I know this is true for a number of reasons, but I want to point out two. First, we live in a culture where we're taught to focus on me and, and mine, what's in it for me. This creates an I culture. And without going into a cultural war here, uh, I will just say this, that in your marriage, you're not to look out for you anymore. You're to do all that you do to look out for us, to look out for we, to look out for ours. And the Bible teaches clearly that two become one, and this is unity, not division. Remember, division is the chief tactic of the enemy. Unity, reconciliation is the chief tactic of Christ and what he has done through the cross. Genesis 2.24 says, Therefore a man shall leave his mother and his father and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one, one flesh. And this is God's design. And the truth is that freedom and the freedoms and joys of love come when we surrender many forms of what it looks like to be an individual. So that's the first one, is we, we're taught to focus more on me. But then the second one, and where we want to go for our time today, is we've abandoned the instructions that have been given to us by God in His Word, even in this very passage that's before us today. Much like Adam and Eve in the garden, we believe that we know a better way than the way that God has given to us, 
and it is to our great frustration often, and it is to our demise. I believe and I submit to you today that you would be wise to hear the Word of God and apply its truth, and I've been praying that He would help us in this way. So, so Paul concludes his thoughts of chapter 5, 1 through 20, with that hinge verse, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And submission or submitting has become a dangerous and dirty four-letter word in our culture, and that is truly unfortunate. But it often comes with good reason because we don't really know how to handle this authority that we've been given or what it looks like to truly follow in submission. But regardless, we should not throw this idea out too quickly. It's still in the word of the Lord, and it is ultimately for our good and God's glory to understand this, receive this, and obey this. You see, submission and to submit is to willingly and humbly, with meekness, join and partner up or attach with someone. So Paul tells us to submit to one another, and then the key phrase comes out, out of reverence for Christ. Reverence here is a deep and profound respect for someone. Honor is at the heart here. Treading lightly out of fear and respect is at the heart of what this means. Now remember, in context, this comes to us in the midst of Paul unpacking what the new life in Christ looks like. What comes to us and how we're changed by the finished work of Jesus. That, that those who have new life in Christ are those who have been born again, and they are to strive to live as God, to mimic him, he says in chapter 5, verse 1. Mimic their creator and their good redeemer. The Holy Spirit works in the heart and the minds of these Christians, he tells us here, causing us to be more cautious and gracious with our words causing us to be more careful uh, and more obedient and God-honoring with our sexuality, as well as how to handle our possessions and our desire for more in regards to greed. Their lives are now to be identified by how they love and how thankful they are. Their hearts are to be thankful and grateful. And now, in addition to this, Paul goes on to say that Christians are to trust and love and honor one another, and even to humbly comply with one another as unity is at the heart of the work of Christ and of the people of God, this reconciliation. And now for the principle for our time for today, submitting to one another out of deep respect and honor for Jesus. Not because we deserve it, not because we will not often fail one another, but he says to submit and trust, respect and honor and join up out of reverence for Jesus Christ. So building off of this great principle, Paul unpacks it and clarifies it a bit and looks at what it looks like practically, street level, in the home, right? Uh, Martin Luther uh, referred to today's portion of our, of our scripture as the household rules. So starting in verse 22, he says, wives submit to your your own husbands, not, not necessarily other, other husbands necessarily, but wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Again, Paul is careful to bring clarity to whom we're ultimately submitting as to the Lord. 
So literally what he's getting at is as you submit to your husbands, you are honoring the Lord. Wives, this is a real way that you practically serve Christ. You see, ultimately, we are asked and told to do this for our sanctification. In other words, this is a means by which we're going to be made more into what it looks like to be like Jesus and grow more reliant upon God. Our sanctification, meaning uh, becoming in the moment who we already are in the eyes of God right now and forevermore, our sanctification comes through a variety of different means. And our sanctification, this change, is rarely easy and convenient. But it does come to us as we seek to live obedient lives and God-honoring lives, as we trust God, His truths, and His words more and more each day. So submitting here is referring to order as in authority. It is not referring to dignity. It's not referring to value, significance, or worth. This authority is not the same as oppression, and it certainly does not imply inadequacy. It's important for us to know that the Bible teaches that, that wives and, and husbands as well, and then later we're going to learn next week that children and parents and servants and masters, they have differing God-appointed roles. But it does not uh, mean that there's difference in dignity and value because they've all been made in the image of God and in Christ now have put on a new person who's created to be like God. So I caution you, despite what culture does with this text, I caution you not to read into this text what isn't there. Let the Word of God speak about the Word of God. Don't let culture tell you what this means. For the husband is the head, is the leader of the wife, even as Christ is the head, the leader of the church, Christ's own body, and is himself, Jesus, its Savior. 1 Corinthians 11.3, Paul writes, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ and the head of every wife is her husband. So here's our model. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. The church submits to Christ willingly with gratitude, with thankfulness in everything, literally in every area of life. And the motivation is out of true and godly reverence for Christ. Now, this everything, of course, is limited to things that aren't immoral, things that are in violation of Scripture. So the point is that wives need to willingly submit to your husband's leadership. And, of course, this implies that the husband embraces his call to lead and love well. And we're going to unpack more about this later. But this is not uh, stifling uh, to follow Christ. It's not abusive to follow Christ. It's not demeaning to follow Christ. Neither should it be considered demeaning or abusive to follow your husband. As with all of chapters 4 through 6, and really all of Scripture, God writes these things for our good. And now whether, we, whether or not we like these things or these things make total sense to us is not the ultimate issue. God has given this to us, and we are wise to earnestly uh, strive to obey what he has given us, to trust that he gets it, that God knows what's up. And so wives should willingly submit because God commands it. It is done as unto the Lord, and it exercises faith and trust, not in the greatness of your husband. That's not the point, but in the greatness of Christ. 
So, so ladies, you will be blessed when you follow your husband, and you'll be blessed when you follow Jesus. And now you might push back and say, whatever, but here's the deal. This requires trust. This requires trust in Christ and in your husband as he follows Christ. You might think, well, I don't want to be bossed around like that by my husband, but that's not the heart here. When this is lived out, it shouldn't be handled that way, and it shouldn't be received or discerned that way. See, for 16 years, my wife Jill and I have lived by this principle here in this passage. And in, in our 16 years, I've made decisions against Jill's desire and against her, what she gen- generally wanted. And she, I just asked her to simply trust me, regardless of what she understood and regardless of what she truly wanted to do. But in 16 years, that's only happened two times. One was about a trip to see family, and the other was about moving to Nashville to start a church. (laughs) And in both instances, I carefully, graciously tried to convince her and lead her, but she simply did not come to a place in the moment where she felt like those two things were best. And I had to say, honey, I just need you to trust me here. Both times... Fortunately, we did not take the trip or move to Nashville until the Lord truly spoke to her and revealed to her, but it came after the point where she was willing to submit and follow my leadership. But it's interesting, in specifically with the trip to Nashville, with moving to Nashville to plant the Axis Church, that she didn't come to a point where she trusted me to lead us to Nashville. She came to a point through prayer where the Lord spoke to her heart and said, Jill, I'm not asking you to put your hope and trust in Jeremy. I'm asking you to put your hope and trust in me as I lead Jeremy. There's a difference. And that's at the heart here in this text. That's what it means to have this authority. This is what a picture of submission looks like. You see, this passage does not, nor should give husbands the green light to boss their wives around and order them around. That's not in the text. That is not understanding this passage of Scripture. True leaders, loving leaders, gentle leaders, leaders like Jesus, they don't have to announce their authority, and they don't have to announce that they're leaders. They don't leverage their position or power for their own advancement. Rather, they leverage what they have for the good of others, to serve others. True leaders are followed by others who willingly follow because they can be trusted And they have in mind what's best for all those who have been given to them. I mean, this is the picture of the gospel, is it not? I mean, consider Philippians chapter 2, where it says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. If you lord over your wives, you're doing it out of selfish ambition and conceit and pride. You're doing it wrong. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Essentially, just basically have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped and held onto, but instead emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant to this extent being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself to this extent by becoming obedient to the point of death, 
even to this extent, even death on a cross. You see, this is a picture of ultimate leadership and how you're to leverage position and power. Now, building on this truth, Paul turns to the, to the husbands here and directs them to live in such a way uh, to make it a joy for their wives to follow them and submit to them. He says this in 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, that he might set her apart, having cleansed her by, the, by, by bathing of water, by washing of water with the word, teaching and, and leading in Scripture so that he might present the church to himself in great beauty, in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, that she might be holy and without blemish. She might be free from guilt. And this is the husband's goal. The husband's goal is not his personal pleasure. The husband's goal is his wife's holiness. This is his goal, that she would be holy and without blemish and free from guilt and this sort of weight. And in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. This love that a husband is to have for his bride is unceasing care. It is sacrificial devotion. It is willing service for the wife's whole being. And this is required of the husband. This is in your job description as what it means to be a husband. But notice he doesn't say, exercise your rule and authority that you've been given. That's not what you see here. He said, Love your wives as Christ loves the church. Begs the question, how did Jesus love? Jesus gave even himself. Not from himself. He gave himself for her good. Christ took the initiative. Jesus Christ was willing to and in fact did make the ultimate sacrifice for the church's ultimate joy. You see, men, the Bible teaches that within marriage, it's the duty of the husband to protect and to lead, to care for, to live for, and provide for his wife and family. And we see this modeled perfectly by how Christ lived and suffered and died for the church. So men, as husbands, were to exemplify this covenant-keeping love toward our brides for their joy and also for others to get a look into what it looks like for Jesus to love his church. You see, Jesus loved his his church, his bride, his people so much that he came to live perfectly for us, to suffer greatly for us, to die on a criminal's cross for us and beat death for us, all to pursue his bride and in order for his bride to present it to his father. And it tells us that he endured all that with joy for what lied ahead for her being presented holy and blameless. And he accomplished his saving work to such an extent so perfectly that his bride can wear white when presented to his dad because she'd been washed in his own blood. He died so that we could live. He died so that his bride would flourish. This is radical, robust, and sacrificial love. Therefore, men, were to model this. We're to cherish and suffer for, persevere, protect, and give grace and love as Jesus has us, his church, his bride. Your marriages are to be pictures of the gospel, not sitcoms of sexual abuse or jealousy or sarcasm or division or bitterness, but pictures of the gospel. People should look into your marriages and think, man, God is good. And look at how Jesus loves me. I can look at that love and and, and be in awe of what God is doing with his people. 
That is what it looks like to understand submission and leadership in the home. That is a beautiful thing to watch. Now, moving on in verse 29, he says, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes. This cherish is interesting. It's tender affection and comfort. Tender affection and comfort. He nourishes and cherishes his own flesh just as Christ does the church. Man, that's interesting. Is that not wonderful to understand that this is how Christ handles us? Like, Christ handles us with this nourishing and comfort and this cherishing and this tender affection. That's the real Jesus. That's the real Jesus. Tender affection. Because we're members of his body. We take care of our bodies. We've, we've been made one in our marriage, and we're to care for our wife in the same way that we care for ourselves. Even better, we're to nourish and cherish our brides the way that Jesus does the church. There's no higher standard than to do this as Christ has done it. There is no higher standard. Then we have a commentary here that uh, back in Genesis 2.24, God gives a commentary about what marriage is. Um, he said, it's quoted from there in verse 31, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This hold fast to his wife is strong language. This is, what I mean by strong is it's convicting. It's convicting language. This hold fast means to join, like with, with glue. But not just physically. This specifically means to become emotionally and intellectually attached. To be faithfully devoted to. Nothing hinders this holding fast. Nothing kills this holding fast, this emotional and intellectual attachment. Nothing destroys this more than toying around in pornography and finding sexual satisfaction alone. You become emotionally and intellectually attached to images on a screen and not your bride and not your husband. We make it much more difficult than it needs to be by toying around in pornography and trying to stay with our spouse. You can't hold fast to the ground while you try to go to the moon. You can't hold fast to your bride and pornography. You can't become emotionally and intellectually attached to both. And porn always wins in that way. Your spouse will always suffer. Men, you're to hold fast to your wife, to become emotionally and intellectually attached in deep ways with her. Not another woman, not another image. That's not Christian, and it's not fair. And marriage begins to get a whole lot more fun and a whole lot easier when you take a step back from pornography, the great intimacy destroyer. And I want to work through this so much more, and I plan to, if you want to mark your calendar on March 20th, on August 20th, I want to unpack a little bit more of what this looks like to pursue holiness in our sexuality in regards to pornography. But for now, we have to move on. Take that as a challenge, men and women both, and understand that hold fast. That hold fast is as old as Genesis 2. And we need to understand more about what that really means. It's not cute. It's not silly. It's not just fun. 
it literally kills your heart and your capacity to love your spouse. There is radical hope. Oh, there's so much hope. Over-the-top hope. Press in to the gospel, and we'll get there together. So Paul wraps up this marriage and this husband-wife portion with this somewhat of a grand mic drop summary statement here. In, in verse 32 and 33, he says, Now this mystery of marriage is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Marriage is about Christ and the church. However, and this kind of gets at the heart of what submission and leadership looks like in the home. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. That's at the heart of what it looks like to lead. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. That's at the heart of what's being called for with this submission. It's not to follow blindlessly, but it's, it's at the heart of it is respect. You see, marriage is magnificent and mysterious because it points to something that is magnificent. In and of itself, it's not magnificent. Marriage is just a relationship, but, but marriage gains its value from what it's modeled on and what it's pointing toward. The love between a man and a woman in marriage is profound because it reflects something that's profound. It's glorious, and it's glorious because of where it came from and what it's pointing towards, namely the covenant-keeping love between the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and His bride, the apple of His eye, the church. So our marriages are temporal pictures of an eternal commitment of the most radical, robust form of love that's ever existed. Marriage has been created in this world to display Christ and the church and how in this loving relationship, a magnificent, mysterious bond is formed. And when that is lived out in love, tenderness, gentleness, leadership, and, and submission, it's beautiful and it's compelling to watch. Men, our goal in part is to present our wives holy and without blemish. So to husbands and future husbands, what is your plan for pastoring your wife? What's the spiritual trajectory or the hopeful path that you're walking with her on? What's your overall agenda and expectation for your marriage? What do you ultimately plan to do for and with your wife that's going to lead to her increasing in joy and in holiness before God and others? I ask these questions because these are at the heart of your newfound objective. It's on your job description. This is how you're to lead. This is what you should be thinking about every day. It's how to grow in these areas and see her grow in these areas. You must be inconvenienced in order to be a part of what it looks like to lead your wife. You must suffer in order to understand what it looks like for her to be cherished and nourished. So we should be honoring Christ by loving our wives sacrificially, by serving unconditionally, by seeing that she's working through the word herself, by modeling for her what a Christian is and does, and that creates trust. That creates it a lot easier to follow the submission when the man is leading in the way that he should. All the while understanding that your bride is the Lord's long before she's yours. And so you're stewarding her. She ultimately belongs to, to God. And at the end of your lives, may you be able to say that you've done all to present her holy and blameless before the Lord as you have had this opportunity to walk so closely with her. It's sad, but many of our husbands' pursuit of their wives end at the marriage altar. It's done. It's locked up. It's sealed. Got rings and certificates to prove it. But I encourage you, husbands, 
to pursue and capture the heart of your wife again. Date her like you did before you got married. Pursue her and be silly in your pursuit. Be juvenile in your pursuit of her. Going over the top to meet her at her door, to, to send letters, to, to always try to make sure that you're pumping gas for her. Not because she can't do these things, but because you just want to honor her in these ways to where she feels cared for and cherished. Not because she's insignificant and can't pump gas. Lord, have mercy. That's not the point here. Just as it is important to care for yourselves, you must prove that you care for your wife. What would it look like if we pursued and cared for our wives the way that we looked after ourselves? And how would our wives feel? How would our wives feel if we honestly looked out for them the way we looked out for ourselves? Or if we looked out for them more than we looked out for ourselves? Or what, what would it look like if we pursued our wives the way that Christ pursued his church? Getting very practical here, because I don't know, I don't know who tells you these things. I don't, I don't know if, if, if not here, I don't, I don't want you to learn this stuff from a blog or Facebook, please. But, but something I, I feel like I have to share with you is practically what does this look like to honor, because I don't know if anyone else is going to. So men, practical things. Leaving your phone away when you're with her. Leaving your phone on silence. Cherishing FaceTime with her, not the app. That defeats the purpose. Consistently writing her a love letter. Leaving your computer at work or in the bag. Always, always answering the phone when it's her. Always. Being quick to reply to a text when it's her. It's fine if you're at a meeting and someone else calls or texts. You might not be able to do that. But go into every meeting. I encourage you, go into every meeting just saying, hey, if my wife needs me, I, I, have, to, I have to respond to her. Now, ladies, what this also means is you're not to like be blowing up his phone every day, especially when you know he's in a significant meeting to see if he really heard the sermon and is going to be practicing these things. <laughs> but when there's an emergency need that comes up, you, you totally forfeit your day. You cancel your plans and you go meet her emergency needs. You attend the birthing of your children, okay, <laughs> from last week. Uh, if you weren't with us last week, listen to the podcast, you'll understand. Um, but when there's significant doctor's visits, you know, not just routine stuff, you're there with her. Um, you call and text throughout the day to let her know that you're thinking about her and praying for her. And Jill and I do this every day at 1111. Um, both a.m. and p.m. We, you know, rarely are we up that late, but if we are, we just say, hey, it's 11-11, and we pray and tell each other we love each other, and we do that in the morning too. But setting a time, maybe a, a reminder on your phone that just pops up and says, hey, pray. Pray for your spouse. Text her. Let her know what she means to you right now. Thank her for something. Um, work on task as a surprise and not begrudgingly, um, not after she's begged you and hassled you to become, it's now become a weight, right? But doing it as a surprise. And this seems juvenile, but I feel like I need to say it. Cleaning up after yourself. Clean up after yourself. It's not her responsibility to take care of you in this way. Clean up after yourself. Uh, share what you're learning in the Word with her. This is a form of leading her. She sees your devotion to Christ. It's compelling. It's really frustrating for her to have a desire for these things and for you just to not care. 
listen to her and ask open-ended questions. Um, Valentine's Day, if you kind of do this, Valentine's Day becomes less and less significant or rare because she feels cherished so many days a year. Work hard. Work hard. Go to bed tired. Earn a good living and provide. Drop all to welcome her presence. I mean, it's amazing. I've been convicted over this for the last year been working through how to do this. But when I see y'all at Walmart, or if I see y'all here at the Axis family, when we gather together, man, it's like, hey, you know, give you big hugs. It's like when our spouse walks in, it's like, hey, did you get the list I sent you? It's like, man, how can I greet y'all with such joy and not my wife? Well, it's because I assume her. And that's not, Christ doesn't assume us. That's assuming is antithetical to cherishing. So consider that. Spend time with her to where this becomes not an obstacle to your hobbies, but where spending time with her becomes fun as, as like a hobby, where you just, you're just daydreaming about being able to hang out with her, um, where she becomes your buddy, she becomes your, your friend, like a lot like it used to be. Pursue romance and intimacy apart from mere sexuality. Intimacy is more of a posture of the heart and not a physical act and understanding how to pursue and foster that intimacy apart from the bed. And wives, you must honor your husbands regardless of how well he's to do this. They don't need the added pressure of, oh, so now the preacher says something, you're suddenly going to care about this. That's cute. We'll see how long this one's going to last. This is cutting down and uh, this kind of talking about him both to his face and to your children and to others has got to stop. You need to do all you can to celebrate this newfound concern for you. It'll be for your good. Don't be sarcastic or skeptical. Pray that it continues as unto Christ. Now, family, this is all over-the-top difficult to live out. And on top of all that we're being asked to do here, on top of trying to be perfect, we have the enemy working 24 hours a day to kill our intimacy and to destroy our marriages. So I got to this point in my sermon where I literally ask, how in the world can we do what's being expected of us here? What hope do we have? Our hope cannot be in us getting to a place where we do this perfectly or where we do it better than that couple or that person. This is insufficient. This won't do. This won't help us. This will create guilt. It is impossible. Our hope is once again found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And friends, even in this, even in living out principles from Scripture, like in Ephesians 5, 22 through 33, even in this, we must know that Jesus came and lived perfectly for us, as us. And his representative work for us and as us is so perfect that God justifies us completely, even in how well or terrible we do at leading and submitting and loving each other in the home. Now, for the Christian, the ultimate pressure is off. And now we have the privilege and freedom to swing away and give obedience our best Christ-honoring effort. Living from our identity in Christ, we are now free to love our spouses in obedience because we're not living for their approval and we're not living for our worth. 
If we gained our deep soul identity from our spouses, we could not continue in our marriages. It would get too difficult, too wearisome, and too weighty. However, here's hope. We can continue to faithfully endure together through the ups and downs of marriage as we live in light of our new identity that comes to us in the gospel. You can take the unfortunate gut punches from your spouse and remain steadfast because the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases and the constant love from God towards us never ceases. So Christian, our identity and our value is firmly fixed and is immovable. It is unchangeable. We are cherished, adored, prized, honored, esteemed by God, the grand and great creator of all things. Now, certainly our marriages will flourish more with fewer gut punches. So try to be faithful there. Try to do a good job at being a husband and a wife. But the reality is we're sinners in need of great grace and significant mercy every day. Reality is we will not be perfect. Reality is we will fail here. So our hope can't be in each other not disappointing each other. We can't live with that expectation weighing over us. Our hope must be in God. Our hope must be in God, the God who can do anything, the, the God who can part the sea and walk on water, the God who can create from nothing, the God who can strike straight with a crooked stick every time, the God who can do the impossible without breaking a sweat. Christian, this is the God who's in your heart, in your lives, and in your marriages. Now, if he's not there, if he's not in your heart, if he's not in your marriage, you're in trouble. But as long as God is there, and for Christians, he's there, then you can make it. There's hope. So for those who are unbelievers, here's yet another simple yet practical reason for you to call out to God for life, for redemption, for forgiveness. Ask his spirit to come in you to enable you, to strengthen you, to live in light of this truth. In closing, Paul associates this call to obedience in our marriage with our sanctification and our holiness. It's in the same context of this new life in Christ. And he sees all this as a result, not of us white-knuckling something, but he sees this as a result of the Holy Spirit changing us. So rather than growing weary and discouraged when we fail here, call out for mercy, call out for strength, call out for guidance, call out for grit, as we strive after what we're being called to follow here. Ask the Spirit of God to work in your heart in these ways, to develop holiness and a desire to be more like God. Ask God the, uh, for, for a greater trust in Him so that you can trust God to, to lead and develop your husband. Ask God for a greater humility and generosity as you seek to live more sacrificially for your wives. If you're married, pray over these things together. Pursue these things. Pursue these things individually and pursue these things together. Now, as we press towards communion together as a family and remember the saving work of Jesus Christ for us, we're unifying ourselves, not dividing ourselves. We're unifying ourselves around what Christ has done in his reconciling of us with his Father which is what we were really looking for. Your ultimate hope is not finding a perfect spouse. Your ultimate hope is to find God. And Jesus is the one who has come to find you and bring you to him. That's the saving work of Christ for you. And we get to celebrate that even now through communion as we take the bread that represents his body.
as we take the juice or the wine that represents his blood, and we worship Jesus for his salvation, for what he has done for us. We also acknowledge that we have been changed from a dead man to a living man, from a dead woman to a living woman, and we have the Spirit of God living in us to enable us and change us and empower us to live a life that is holy before the Lord and godly before others. The Spirit does this within us. And so we come to celebrate Christ. We also acknowledge the Spirit's role and how he's working to change us through what we're taking, through what Christ has accomplished for us. So come with thankful hearts, rejoicing over our gracious and great salvation. Come with thankful hearts as you celebrate the finished work of Jesus. Come with expectant and grateful hearts as you lean and press into the Holy Spirit to do a significant work in you as you submit your lives to Christ. And then let him work in your marriages, in your hearts, in what it looks like to create a home that's in obedience with the scriptures. Praying for you, pulling for your marriages, press into one another, take these things to heart. Think through these things, pray through these things. Let me pray for our time. God, thank you for this teaching that Paul gave to us. Lord, thank you for giving it to him to pass on to us. Lord, I pray for the humility needed to follow this, especially in light of how this text has been abused in our American culture, European culture. Lord, um, I ask that you produce in us thankful, humble hearts, Lord, hearts that trust you and your word. And Lord, that we would get to a place where we become less skeptical of the things that, that seem kind of inconvenient or demeaning, and that we would see that they're given to us for our joy and our change. Lord, um, would we not try to change Scripture where we're uncomfortable? Would we seek your Spirit to change us, seeing that that discomfort is a sign of conviction of where you're wanting to change us or protect us in these ways and guide us in these ways? Lord, I pray for those who don't know you, Lord, that they would, that they would desire your spirit to come and change them, that they would desire this new life and understand this forgiveness that's in you, that they, would, that they would get to taste and see that you're good and that they would understand what it's like to have the power of God living within their hearts, within their lives, within their minds. Lord, help the Axis Church as we pursue holiness individually and together. Be with the future marriages of this church family. Be with the current marriages of this church family. Be with the relationships that are, that are fickle, that are, that are hanging by a thread. Lord, would you strengthen them and would you allow them to understand more what it means to hold fast to one another and hold fast to you. Lord, encourage them with the fact that their marriage isn't held together by their own hands but they're in a covenant relationship where you're holding them together, that you're present and you're there with them, that it's a covenant. Lord, it involves you. Allow them to think through that. Allow them to process that. Help them work through things with honesty. Give them trust for one another. God, I have trust. God, help them in these ways. Lord, be with those who are single, not married yet, desiring this thing. Lord, give them the spouse that they need. Lord, give them to their spouse, Lord, the answer to that person's prayer. 
and strengthen that, would that be a picture of the gospel as well? Allow them to hold fast, Lord, in this season of waiting without growing to despair or discouragement. Lord, don't, don't let them get bitter or resentful towards other marriages and relationships that are popping up around them. Lord, guard their hearts in this way. And Lord, what they desire is a good thing. Lord, give it to them. I ask as we go from this place, Lord, that you would allow these truths to sink deep into our hearts and minds and that you would give us the, the beauty of recollection from this text, the gift of being able to recall our time together to where we think, we process, we meditate on your word. We must have this. Help us in this way. Add your special blessing to our time of communion. In Christ's name, amen.